Psalm number 8 of the Treasury of David. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephanie. The Treasury of David, Volume 1, by Charles Spurgeon. Psalm number 8. Title. To the Chief Musician, upon Giddeth, a psalm of David. We are not clear upon the meaning of the word giddeth. Some think it refers to gath, and may refer to a tune commonly sung there, or an instrument of music there invented, or a song of Obededom, the Gittite, in whose house the ark rested, or better still, a song sung over Goliath of Gath. Others, tracing the Hebrew to its root, conceive it to mean a song for the winepress, a joyful hymn for the treaders of grapes. The term giddeth is applied to two other psalms, 81 and 84, both of which, being of a joyous character, it may be concluded that where we find that word in the title, we may look for a hymn of delight. We may style this psalm the song of the astronomer. Let us go abroad and sing it beneath the starry heavens at eventide, for it is very probable that in such a position it first occurred to the poet's mind. Dr. Chalmers says, There is much in the scenery of a nocturnal sky to lift the soul to pious contemplation. That moon and these stars, what are they? They are detached from the world, and they lift us above it. We feel withdrawn from the earth, and rise in lofty abstraction from this little theater of human passions and human anxieties. The mind abandons itself to reverie, and it is transferred in the ecstasy of its thought to distant and unexplored regions. It sees nature in the simplicity of her great elements, and it sees the God of nature invested with the high attributes of wisdom and majesty. Division the first and last verses are a sweet song of admiration in which the excellence of the name of God is extolled. The intermediate verses are made up of holy wonder at the Lord's greatness in creation and at his condescension toward man. Poole, in his annotations, has well said, It is a great question among interpreters whether this psalm speaks of man in general and of the honor which God puts upon him in his creation, or only of the man Christ Jesus. Possibly both may be reconciled and put together, and the controversy, if rightly stated, may be ended, for the scope and business of this psalm seems plainly to be this, to display and celebrate the great love and kindness of God to mankind, not only in his creation, but especially in his redemption by Jesus Christ, whom, as he was man, he advanced to the honor and dominion here mentioned, that he might carry on his great and glorious work. So Christ is the principal subject of this psalm, and it is interpreted of him both by our Lord himself, Matthew chapter 21, verse 16, and by his holy apostle, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 27, and Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Exposition, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, 
How excellent is thy name in all the earth, who hast set thy glory above the heavens. Unable to express the glory of God, the psalmist utters a note of exclamation, O Jehovah our Lord! We need not wonder at this, for no heart can measure, no tongue can utter, the half of the greatness of Jehovah. The whole creation is full of his glory and radiant with the excellency of his power. His goodness and his wisdom are manifested on every hand. The countless myriads of terrestrial beings, from man the head to the creeping worm at the foot, are all supported and nourished by the divine bounty. The solid fabric of the universe leans upon his eternal arm. Universally is he present, and everywhere is his name excellent. God worketh ever and everywhere. There is no place where God is not. The miracles of his power await us on all sides. Traverse the silent valleys where the rocks enclose you on either side, rising like the battlements of heaven, till you can see but a strip of the blue sky far overhead. You may be the only traveler who has passed through that glen. The bird may start up affrighted, and the moss may tremble beneath the first tread of human foot. But God is there in a thousand wonders, upholding yon rocky barriers, filling the flower cups with their perfume, and refreshing the lonely pines with the breath of his mouth. Descend, if you will, into the lowest depths of the ocean, where undisturbed the water sleeps, and the very sand is motionless in unbroken quiet. But the glory of the Lord is there, revealing its excellence in the silent palace of the sea. Borrow the wings of the morning and fly to the uttermost parts of the sea, but God is there. Mount to the highest heaven or dive into the deepest hell, and God is in both, hymned in everlasting song or justified in terrible vengeance. Everywhere and in every place God dwells and is manifestly at work. Nor on earth alone is Jehovah extolled, for his brightness shines forth in the firmament above the earth. His glory exceeds the glory of the starry heavens. Above the region of the stars he hath set fast his everlasting throne, and there he dwells in light ineffable. Let us adore him, who alone spreadeth out the heavens, and treadeth upon the waves of the sea, who maketh Arcturus, Orion, and Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, Job chapter 9, verses 8 and 9. We can scarcely find more fitting words than those of Nehemiah. Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas, and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. Returning to the text, we are led to observe that this psalm is addressed to God, because none but the Lord himself can fully know his own glory. The believing heart is ravished with what it sees, but God only knows the glory of God. What a sweetness lies in the little word hour! How much is God's glory endeared to us when we consider our interest in him as our Lord? How excellent is thy name! No words can express that excellency, and therefore it is left as a note of exclamation. 
The very name of Jehovah is excellent. What must his person be? Note the fact that even the heavens cannot contain his glory. It is set above the heavens, since it is, and ever must be, too great for the creature to express. When wandering amid the Alps, we felt that the Lord was infinitely greater than all his grandest works, and under that feeling we roughly wrote these few lines. Yet in all these, how great soe'er they be, we see not him. The glass is all too dense and dark, or else our earth-born eyes too dim. Yon Alps, that lift their heads above the clouds, and hold familiar converse with the stars, are dust, at which the balance trembleth not, compared with his divine immensity. The snow-crowned summits fail to set him forth, who dwelleth in eternity, and bears alone the name of high and lofty one. Depths unfathomed are too shallow to express the wisdom and knowledge of the Lord. The mirror of the creatures has no space to bear the image of the infinite. Tis true the Lord hath fairly writ his name, and set his seal upon creation's brow. But as the skillful potter much excels the vessel which he fashions on the wheel, even so, but in proportion greater far, Jehovah's self transcends his noblest works. Earth's ponderous wheels would break, her axles snap, if freighted with a load of deity. Space is too narrow for the Eternal's rest, and time too short a footstool for his throne. Even avalanche and thunder lack a voice to utter the full volume of his praise. How, then, can I declare him? Where are words with which my glowing tongue may speak his name? Silent I bow, and humbly I adore. Verse 2. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. Nor only in the heavens above is the Lord seen, but the earth beneath is telling forth his majesty. In the sky the massive orbs, rolling in their stupendous grandeur, are witnesses of his power in great things, while here below, the lisping utterances of babes are the manifestations of his strength in little ones. How often will children tell us of a God whom we have forgotten? How doth their simple prattle refute those learned fools who deny the being of God? Many men have been made to hold their tongues while sucklings have borne witness to the glory of the God of heaven. It is singular how clearly the history of the church expounds this verse. Did not the children cry Hosanna in the temple, when proud Pharisees were silent and contemptuous? And did not the Savior quote these very words as a justification of their infantile cries? Early church history records many amazing instances of the testimony of children for the truth of God, but perhaps more modern instances will be the most interesting. Fox tells us in the Book of Martyrs that when Mr. Lawrence was burnt in Colchester, he was carried to the fire in a chair, because through the cruelty of the papists he could not stand upright. Several young children came about the fire and cried as well as they could speak, Lord, strengthen thy servant and keep thy promise. God answered their prayer, for Mr. Lawrence died as firmly and calmly as anyone could wish to breathe his last. 
when one of the popish chaplains told Mr. Weishart, the great Scottish martyr, that he had a devil in him, a child that stood by cried out, A devil cannot speak such words as yonder man speaketh. One more instance is still nearer to our time. In a postscript to one of his letters in which he details his persecution when first preaching in Moorfields, Whitfield says, I cannot help adding that several little boys and girls who were fond of sitting round me on the pulpit while I preached and handed to me people's notes, though they were often pelted with eggs, dirt, etc., thrown at me, never once gave way. But on the contrary, every time I was struck, turned up their little weeping eyes and seemed to wish they could receive the blows for me. God make them in their growing years great and living martyrs for him who, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, perfects praise. He who delights in the songs of angels is pleased to honor himself in the eyes of his enemies by the praises of little children. What a contrast between the glory above the heavens and the mouths of babes and sucklings, yet by both the name of God is made excellent. Verses 3 and 4 When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? At the close of that excellent little manual entitled The Solar System, written by Dr. Dick, we find an eloquent passage which beautifully expounds the text. A survey of the solar system has a tendency to moderate the pride of man and to promote humility. Pride is one of the distinguishing characteristics of puny man and has been one of the chief causes of all the contentions, wars, devastations, systems of slavery, and ambitious projects which have desolated and demoralized our sinful world. Yet there is no disposition more incongruous to the character and circumstances of man. Perhaps there are no rational beings throughout the universe among whom pride would appear more unseemly or incompatible than in man, considering the situation in which he is placed. He is exposed to numerous degradations and calamities, to the rage of storms and tempests, the devastations of earthquakes and volcanoes, the fury of whirlwinds, and the tempestuous billows of the ocean, to the ravages of the sword, famine, pestilence, and numerous diseases, and at length he must sink into the grave, and his body must become the companion of worms. The most dignified and haughty of the sons of men are liable to these and similar degradations, as well as the meanest of the human family. Yet in such circumstances, man, that puny worm of the dust, whose knowledge is so limited and whose follies are so numerous and glaring, has the effrontery to strut in all the haughtiness of pride and to glory in his shame. When other arguments and motives produce little effect on certain minds, no considerations seem likely to have a more powerful tendency to counteract this deplorable propensity in human beings than those which are borrowed from the objects connected with astronomy. They show us what an insignificant being, what a mere atom indeed, man appears amidst the immensity of creation. Though he is an object of the paternal care and mercy of the Most High, 
Yet he is but as a grain of sand to the whole earth, when compared to the countless myriads of beings that people the amplitudes of creation. What is the whole of this globe on which we dwell, compared with the solar system, which contains a mass of matter ten thousand times greater? What is it in comparison of the hundred millions of suns and worlds which by the telescope have been described throughout the starry regions? What, then, is a kingdom, a province, or a baronial territory, of which we are as proud as if we were the lords of the universe, and for which we engage in so much devastation and carnage? What are they, when set in competition with the glories of the sky? Could we take our station on the lofty pinnacles of heaven, and look down on this scarcely distinguishable speck of earth, we should be ready to exclaim with Seneca, is it to this little spot that the great designs and vast desires of men are confined? Is it for this there is so much disturbance of nations, so much carnage, and so many ruinous wars? Oh, the folly of deceived men to imagine great kingdoms in the compass of an atom, to raise armies to decide a point of earth with the sword. Dr. Chalmers, in his astronomical discourses, very truthfully says, We gave you but a feeble image of our comparative insignificance when we said that the glories of an extended forest would suffer no more from the fall of a single leaf than the glories of this extended universe would suffer through the globe we tread upon, and all that it inherits should dissolve. Verses 5-8 through eight. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. These verses may set forth man's position among the creatures before he fell, but as they are by the Apostle Paul, appropriated to man as represented by the Lord Jesus, it is best to give most weight to that meaning. In order of dignity, man stood next to the angels, and a little lower than they. In the Lord Jesus this was accomplished, for he was made a little lower than the angels by the suffering of death. Man in Eden had the full command of all creatures, and they came before him to receive their names as an act of homage to him as the vice-regent of God to them. Jesus, in his glory, is now Lord, not only of all living, but of all created things, and with the exception of him who put all things under him, Jesus is Lord of all, and his elect, in him, are raised to a dominion wider than that of the first Adam, as shall be more clearly seen at his coming. Well might the psalmist wonder, at the singular exaltation of man in the scale of being, when he marked his utter nothingness in comparison with the starry universe. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, a little lower in nature, since they are immortal, and but a little, because time is short, and when that is over, saints are no longer lower than the angels. The margin reads it, a little while inferior to, thou crownest him. The dominion that God has bestowed on man is a great glory and honor to him, 
for all dominion is honor, and the highest is that which wears the crown. A full list is given of the subjugated creatures to show that all the dominion lost by sin is restored in Christ Jesus. Let none of us permit the possession of any earthly creature to be a snare to us, but let us remember that we are to reign over them and not to allow them to reign over us. Under our feet we must keep the world, and we must shun that base spirit which is content to let worldly cares and pleasures sway the empire of the immortal soul. Verse 9 O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth! Here, like a good composer, the poet returns to his keynote, falling back, as it were, into his first state of wondering adoration. What he started with as a preposition in the first verse, he closes with as a well-proven conclusion, with a sort of, quote, erat demonstratum. Oh, for grace to walk worthy of that excellent name which has been named upon us, and which we are pledged to magnify. End of Psalm 8 Recorded by Stephanie, Savannah, Georgia